brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Rep Radio, on time, on target. I'm here with Jack Murphy. Very excited to bring Mark Giaconia on the show, author of One Green Beret. I think it's going to be a fascinating story. Uh, before we get into anything, I want to tell you all about Red War. Listen to Vince Flynn's Red War, a Mitch Rapp novel by Kyle Mills. Red War follows CIA operative Mitch Rapp as he races to prevent Russia's gravely ill leader from starting a full-scale war with NATO. Appropriate subject matter, right, with uh, Trump speaking at the UN today. Uh, Red War is an action-packed thrill ride featuring pulse-pounding suspense, electrifying intrigue, and fascinating characters. The Red War audiobook is read by longtime series narrator George Guidel. Red War is available now wherever audiobooks are sold. Listen to it today. Just came out this week. You're going to love it. Before we get to Mark, Jack, you wrote an article for NewsRep uh, that's on the site right now, the newsrep.com, about Mattis and us staying in Syria. Yeah, he, well, I think it's going to go up tomorrow, actually. So as people, when this is up, yeah. as people are listening to this, it'll be up. But he made a comment at a press conference uh, at the Pentagon about how American soldiers can stay in Syria to train the local forces, the Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, that we've been working with, um, and also to help ensure stability. So I I wrote an article about why I think we want to park ourselves in northern Syria with the Kurds for now. Um, And I think it comes down to serving as a strategic deterrence to keep Turkey out of there, to keep the regime from flooding in there and, and uh, hopefully um, that would prevent a massacre from happening. Um, but it's also strategic ambiguity. So in other words, we're interjecting uncertainty as far as America's foreign policy. We're keeping troops there, but we're not really saying what our policy is in regards to northern Syria, what, which the Kurds call Rojava. What What is our feelings on it? Should it be reintegrated into the Syrian government? Should it be its own independent country? Uh, it, we, we haven't weighed in on that at all. So it just keeps an element of uncertainty to keep some of the players, um, that some of the regional actors off balance. I, I think that's part of it. But I also think part of it is uh, from the Pentagon's perspective in just a very pragmatic way. Um, you know, if people will recall, the Obama administration pulled us out of Iraq. And whether that's a good decision or a bad decision, you can hash that out over a uh, beer some other time. Um, but the fact of the matter is he had us pull all of our forces out. We uprooted all of our intelligence infrastructure out of Iraq. And uh, we just left. And lo and behold, like, what, a year or two later, ISIS sweeps through the region and we have to 
bring everyone back and do it all over again. So I think from the Pentagon's perspective, they probably are hesitant to leave because they realize that reinserting into Syria and starting over from scratch a few years later in response to the next crisis is uh, just going to be that much more ass pain, quite frankly. So they're probably reluctant to do that as well, um, which I can understand. <laughs> there, there's no easy answers in the region. And you know you know there will be another crisis. Sure. Uh, the, the tensions will flare up. It's going to happen. So Of course. Um, I, I can see where they're coming from. And, I, I mean, hopefully the answer is not to leave, you know, several thousand troops in Syria like we have there right now. Hopefully it's just like two or three 12-man special forces teams. Um, which I'm sure we'll talk more about those guys and how they work when we, we get to Mark in a little bit. But hopefully it's a very small American footprint rather yeah. than a, a large troop commitment. Yeah, I, I would hope so. By the way, whenever General Mattis is mentioned, I don't think it, people, even though we're in HD, could read this mouse pad. <laughs> but have you, have you looked at this? I, it's just such a you get great Mattis quote. I just got it on Amazon, and it is the great Mattis quote of, be polite, be professional, but have a plan to kill everybody you meet. General I James think, Mattis. Uh, I, I think they are prepping the battlefield, so to speak, to push Mattis out wow. as Secretary of Defense. I think uh, Bolton and his boys and, and perhaps President Trump as well, I don't know if he's on board or not, but um, they want to do Iran, and they're going to have to push Mattis out to make that happen. So I think he's the next on the chopping block. But we'll see. We'll see how that pans out. I saw Bill, you know, who's uh, written for the site before, wrote something similar to that on Twitter. Yeah, um, it's scary. Um, and you can see things ramping up. I mean, the rhetoric is ramping up on Iran again. It's, it's the whole something's got to be done about Iran, all that kind of nonsense. Um, and I, I think a lot of Trump supporters are going to be pretty shocked to see how fast that ramps up. Uh, yeah, I mean, I th as they should be, because I think that the big departure from Trump and Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush and all of them when he ran is that people saw him as a change from not just the liberal agenda that we had going on with Barack Obama, but the more neoconservative yeah. George Bush, Dick Cheney foreign policy. Well, that we're going to put America first, yeah. that we're not going to engage in these uh, overseas adventures, toppling regimes and deploying troops all over the world and getting nothing for it. Um, but I think, you know, President Trump is also in one of those situations where he wants to show some successes. Um, he might have North Korea, might not. We'll, we're still seeing how that pans out. But he has experienced some success there, right? But I, I think he's going to need something. He's going to want to have something to show for himself, which is very dangerous for a uh, political leader, any political leader, uh, when they command the world's most powerful military. Yeah. I think Hillary would have been in the same situation that she had so little credibility. She would have had to flex some muscle in terms of using the U.S. military to build some credibility for herself. That's what she did in, as Secretary of State in Libya. Well, I want to get over to Mark Giaconia. Before we do, I want to tell you all about Vince Flynn's Red War. Listen to Vince Flynn's Red War, a Mitch Rapp novel by Kyle Mills. Red War follows CIA operative Mitch Rapp as he races to prevent Russia's gravely ill leader from starting a full-scale war with NATO. Red War is an action-packed thrill ride featuring pulse-pounding suspense, electrifying intrigue, and fascinating characters. The Red War audiobook is read by longtime series narrator George Guidel. 
Red War is available now wherever audiobooks are sold. If you're listening on Wednesday, just came out yesterday, so brand new. Listen to it today. You guys are really going to enjoy it. Vince Flynn's Red War, a Mitch Rapp novel by Kyle Mills, and once again, read by George Guidel. Check it out. With that, we're going to get over to Green Beret, Mark Giaconia. Joining us for the first time on Soft Rep Radio, Mark Giaconia, author of One Green Beret, which accounts his service from 1996 to 2011. Although you have 20 years of service, this is about these specific 15 years in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Iraq. Excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And, and just to give you some background to the audience, Mark is now Senior Director of Radiant Solutions, also authored the books Operation Viking Hammer and Quest for War, uh, and you hold two awards for Valor. And I'm excited to get into this actual book. Uh, as you know, you may know, Jack and I haven't gotten a chance to really get into the whole thing, but just skimming through it, it is truly action-packed with these events. It's, it almost reads like a journal on, in, on some level. Yeah, I, uh, I actually came across your book on Amazon by happenstance, I think, Mark, uh, and I'm glad I did. I was just looking at the synopsis, and I was like, oh, okay, this guy was on Viking Hammer, familiar with that operation, and then also in, in Bosnia and Kosovo. So I was like, that's some stuff we haven't talked about, and we've talked about quite a bit on the history of this podcast wrote like what 390 episodes or something yeah we're getting close like, to yeah. 400 yeah it's 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 up there so i mean i'm always searching for uh interesting people who have done things that we haven't talked about a whole lot previously um, and I thought this was a great example. But when I came into work today, I, you know, your book was here, so I haven't had time to read it yet. So I apologize for that. Um, and I may lean on you a little bit. But I, it's your story, so I figure you, you'll probably be pretty yeah, good at telling us right. about it. Yep, we'll be all right. So, uh, right. So you want me to jump into it? Or yeah, I mean, go ahead, to? Mark. I mean, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, why you sat down and decided to write this book in the first place? Well, kind of like... Uh, well, you guys just said, I, I, looking back on my 15 years and as a special forces guy, like I thought some of the things I did were actually kind of unique, you know, uh, and of course the guys who did it with me also did it. But, uh, one of my goals was just to articulate, um, some of these kind of special missions I was on, uh, Viking hammer was one of them. Um, but there were other really bizarre, unexpected missions that, that I just happened to do. Um, I was, I was in special forces on an A team for a pretty cool set of years that, um, in temp group that put me in a lot of totally different places. So I spent some time in Bosnia spent some time in Kosovo. Uh, I went over to Kyrgyzstan as part of, uh, enduring freedom. And then the big, the big UW back on conventional warfare. So, um, yeah, I mean, my goals for the book were really to, you know, this is why I kind of started writing it is, um, you know, I wanted people to know what Green Berets really do. Uh, you see a lot of books that people write where, you know, it's always the football players in black helicopters type of stuff <laughs> that makes the headlines. Uh, and Green Berets don't generally do that that much. Uh, some of them do, but I was on one of the straight unconventional warfare teams and I wanted people to know about that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So that was one of my goals. No, I mean, that's awesome. The other goal was, yeah, I wrote it from a, I guess a, a different type of perspective too, which some people have liked and some haven't, but, uh, 
it was very singularly from my lens as an individual. Um, so I really wanted to convey that individual experience. So I'll stop talking now. Let you guys dig in a little more on specifics. <laughs> well, no, I'm uh, I'm really excited to have you on the show today because you know in the past I've uh, in regards to Viking Hammer I've interviewed Sam Faddis, who was on the agency side, and then I've interviewed Palat Talabani in uh, in Salamania. Uh, who was one of the Kurds on the operation. So, it, but I've never spoken to an right. American, uh, one of the SF guys who was on the operation. So um, I'm actually excited to hear your side of it. Um, I, but this is your book and your story. I mean, where, where do we start with, uh, with your story and, and, and with this narrative? Yeah, I mean, the book starts with Operation Viking Hammer. Um, so it, it kicks off straight into the action. Um, of that operation. You want to tell um, people I guess what, maybe, what that operation yeah. is and how you came to be a part of it? Sure, absolutely. So um, in 2002, like my SF team, called an ODA, um, was given like kind of a special mission to go into Iraq before the war started and do some of the preparatory stuff. So I went there. Uh, I did a really interesting infiltration in um rental cars from Turkey, <laughs> which that's all in my book. <laughs> yeah. So one of them was even like a tinted window, like low rider truck. So that, that was a plus. Um, so we, we get into Iraq, link up with the Kurds, link up with some CIA guys and stuff that were in there. They bring us all the way down into a Sulaimania area, actually a little North of there. Um, and from there, we start trying to figure out, you know, like, where are the Kurds and the different groups and uh, how are they aligned against the Iraqis? Um, and at that time, there was like at least three different kind of terrorist groups operating there, uh, Ansar Islam, IGK and IMK. So we had this kind of dual purpose job of figure out where all these bad guys are target them for, if you remember the whole shock and awe thing, um, right. Prior to the, you know, the, the ground invasion. Right. So a lot of what we did there was register those targets, um, during that time before the war. Um, and then just get the Kurds. Um, you know, I like to say we, we organized the Kurds, but they actually, uh, they didn't need to be organized. We just needed to discover where they were and how they were kind of aligned. Um, it was almost impossible to organize them, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, it's like tens, hundreds of thousands of Kurds with just a few ODAs trying to figure it all out. Um, so long story short on that one is we, we figure out where all the Kurds are. We figure out where we're going to put all of our SF teams once they show up. Um, um, and then that once they landed on the ground, which was a pretty significant event in itself, called the ugly baby. Uh, it's generally referred to as when the 10th special forces group guys flew over Iraq to get into Northern Iraq. Um, and they got, you know, they got shot up in the planes and I mean, I feel lucky that I was already there. I didn't have to go through that flight. Uh, my team was already there, but they landed in a Sulaimania airstrip, which we had paid Kurdish construction workers to fix, uh, while we were there. So they could land. Um, and kind of, we, we sent them on their way out to the places we, you know, we, we'd set up for them with these different Kurdish little militias and stuff that were there. 
Um, and then at that point, my team went wholesale down to an area called Halabja, mm-hmm. and that's where we mounted the attack on Ansar al-Islam, and that was called Operation Viking Hammer. I mean, people so will call that Halabja is uh, a nest of bad guys, I mean, to this day, really. Yeah, totally. Um, it's. It, I don't know if it always has been, but it was in 2002, Ansar Islam, IGK, IMK, and then a little bit further north was PKK. Uh, they, they blatantly owned land. Like, they literally had machine gun bunkers in the road with the flag flying, like, hey, this is our territory. Uh, it, it was that, like, overt how they were set up. It was really... Almost for the average American, you probably couldn't even imagine. Imagine suddenly you're going to the supermarket and there's a machine gun bunker on the road <laughs> saying some faction is saying, I can't go down this road or they're going to chop my head off. But you know? th- this was so, uh, this was Ansar al-Islam that you were dealing with. Yep. Well, actually, we dealt with Ansar al-Islam primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was IGK, which is Islamic Group of Kurdistan. And then there was IMK, which I think is Islamic Movement of Kurdistan, which were on the flanking sides of where Ansar Islam was. Um, and there was, you know, there's some things about that I probably shouldn't talk about because it didn't get approved in my pre-publication review. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. That's how they were laid out there. Um, so on Operation Viking Hammer was when we really decided to uh, attack uh, Ansar Islam. So the idea was we can't go after the Iraqis and push them south if if we're going to get um, you know hit from behind from potentially thousands of different random terrorist uh, cells. <clears throat> so we took out Ansar Islam with this uh, Operation Viking Hammer. So what it was was roughly... The, the numbers vary by opinion, but there was anywhere from like seven to 10,000 Kurdish fighters showed up for this thing. <laughs> um, yeah, it was massive in scale. Like, it, uh, I'm surprised it's not a better known operation. Actually. I mean, when I see, um, when I've seen pictures from the operation, I mean, how, what would you say the breakdown was amongst the Kurds as far as like Peshmerga versus PKK guerrillas? Well, and from what I saw, they were all PKK. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, they were all uh, PUK. So the the Peshmerga that I worked with were either PUK or KDP, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not sure what they what they're. I think they're different now. Well, yeah, PUK um, P- is the political PKK party in the south, like the, and and KDP is the political party in northern Kurdistan, and then PKK is the the guerrilla organization that exists, you know, spread across Turkey and, and what we consider Northern right. Iraq. Yep. Yeah. So these were all PUK Kurds as far as I was, well, at least that's what I thought I knew at the time. And, and the, I should um, just point out for the listeners too, that the Peshmerga is not a, um, a, a necessarily a harmonized homogenous organization. I mean, they're, they're split amongst PUK Peshmerga and KDP Peshmerga, the two predominant political parties. So it's almost as if, imagine in America, if the Republican Party had its own army and the Democratic Party had its own army. That's kind of what you're, <laughs> you're starting to envision. Yeah, right. Um, that's yep. just a, that's another distinction. So what Mark is saying is that he was working with the PUK's Peshmerga, that political party's Peshmerga. Right, yep. 
And back then, if you roughly split northern Iraq in half, um, they were on the right side mm-hmm. of, of northern Iraq. That's kind of how it lays out. Um, yeah, so it was roughly, uh, you know, 8,000-ish Kurds. Um, and then there was six SF teams, uh, which were actually broken up into smaller team elements and just distributed across this massive amount of Kurds. Like liaisons. Uh, and we... Yeah, so we were exactly we were there to facilitate comms uh, for the maneuvering of all the different elements, um, but also for air support, you know, calling in airstrike, which we didn't actually have that much air support on it. Uh, but we organized, I think, also into six prongs. Um, and the prong I was on, and the one I wrote about in my book, is that was the yellow prong, which was the you know, in military terminology, it's called the main effort of the attack, which means you're the one who's going to seize the objective. Mm-hmm. Um, and the objective was to um, secure the Sargat chemical facility, uh, which if you Google that, you'll actually find some articles about what was what was there. But basically, Ansar Islam was doing some kind of stuff with poisons and things like that. Um, so we were we were to secure that in this tiny village called Sargat, um, and then the other prongs were either supporting our advance, like the green prong, um, and then there were other prongs more to the south from us that were just seizing other objectives, uh, some of which were were significant as well, like like Sargat was. So it was, um, you know, we, it, it, I described the um, the beginnings of the battle. Uh, like, like Braveheart, you know, where you've got just these two masses of forces. And by the way, there was, there was the numbers vary from like 500 to a thousand Ansar Islam guys were dug into the, to the mountains there. Um, and a lot of people don't associate mountains with Iraq, but Northern Iraq looks kind of like Colorado. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's no joke, uh, the, the terrain, there was even snow on the peaks during this time in Operation Viking Hammer. So we're talking about a serious mountain terrain. So um, when we started the, the battle, we, we basically all linked up at this um, small little village on the outskirts of, of a small village called Dikan, I think it was called, and uh, which is very close to Halabja. And there's where literally thousands and thousands of PUK Peshmerga showed up any way you could possibly get there. So they're like guys driving on tractors, you know, taxi cabs, motorcycles with like five people on it. You know, it's like clown cars and stuff showing up almost. Like just people with any weapon they could find, uh, any way they could get there. You know, they're they're ready to take back all this land from, from Ansar Islam. And essentially, uh, they've been at a war with these guys for years. Um, so... I describe it as Braveheart because the Ansar guys were standing on the ridgeline just looking at us, too, down uh, probably, I don't know, two clicks away, two two kilometers, and you could see them uh, just standing there. So it was like this huge face-off. I mean, it was chilling. You know, like, here here we are amassing for this attack, and the, the bad guys are just standing there looking at us. <laughs> Eventually, you know, they <laughs> kind of the signal for the charge was uh, when they touched off this double-barreled anti-aircraft gun and just firing it into these 
into the mountains, you know, as we all started to kind of ooze towards the hills and just running like an assault toward toward the hills. Yeah, Gettysburg uh, charge. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, exactly. It was it was it was so huge. It was actually struggled as a writer to like convey the the massiveness of it um, because it was. You know, it wasn't like your typical little thing where, you know, you got in a firefight with a few people and a few minutes later it was over. You know, it, this was thousands of people covering thousands of square kilometers, I think it might have even been, you know, facing an enemy that's like entrenched for a, a huge amount of, of uh, terrain. So they had dump trucks as armored personnel carriers um, and they were loading people up into them. They had these flatbed pickup trucks with all kinds of different guns mounted to them. It was just this makeshift rabble of warriors, you know, just, you know, headed for the enemy, like head on. You know, it was, it was, it was, I'm getting like emotional talking about it, like thinking about it again. Uh, so anyway, we, we basically fought all day um, from, Literally, when the sun came up until it went down, uh, we fought our way through a couple villages. We had some aircraft come in and a, and a couple strategic points. Uh, at one point, I was convinced we were all going to die uh, right on the outskirts of Sargat, where there was, uh, I describe it as like horizontal rain of tracers just pouring out of this village, and there, we were maneuvering across essentially open ground. Uh, luckily, there were stone walls running uh, kind of, you know, perpendicular to the, the the line we were approaching from, and we had some cover there. Uh, but it was a knockdown, drag them out, um, you know, assault on this village for all day. Uh, it was, it was, it was insane. You know, I, I shot like I was carrying an M21 sniper rifle, which is like a M14 semi-auto weapon. I think I put 20 magazines of match-grade ammo through that thing, and we emptied an entire pickup of like a 50 cal and a Mark 19 machine gun, you know, while you know just running alongside the Kurds, um, trying to take this village. Uh, there's one, there's one significant event of the whole attack where you know, the, the point in which I describe in my book, um, I've gotten a lot of good feedback about this part of the book of describing the sense of, um, like impending doom that falls over you when you actually think you're going to die like any second for an extended amount of time. Um, and at, at this one pinnacle, they, the Ansar guys started firing this very high caliber, like, machine gun down into the valley from one of the hills on the outskirts of Sargat. Sargat was kind of like a bowl um, in the in the foothills. And, uh, you know, me and two other guys on my team were kind of charged with, we need to get on top of some high ground with a 50 cal and try to find where this thing is and take it out. Um, so that was the most epic event of Operation Viking Hammer for me was dashing across a field of, you know, tracers and mortars and everything else that was dropping, trying to get to one of our pickup trucks where the 50 cal was just thrown in the back. Um, and then grabbing that thing, one of my teammates, uh, the comms guy was a 
just a beast of a guy. I mean, we were all kind of beasts, beasts of guys, but he threw the uh, 50 cal on his shoulder. You know, another guy grabbed the tripod, me and a bunch of Kurds grabbed some ammo, and we just ran up this hill uh, to get to the top of it and set up the 50 and took out uh, this machine gun, ultimately. It's like uh, the kind of fighting you'd associate with, like, Marines in the Pacific during World War II or something. Yeah. I mean, it, it's hardcore. <laughs> it was. You know, it was old school. I mean, we had some airstrikes, but most of it was just ground uh, combat. And, you know, we, we probably maneuvered. I don't know. I'm guessing, but 20, 25 kilometers of movement. You know, it, it was, uh, I mean, we were running all day, you know, and just attacking deeper and deeper into the mountains. And I, I mean, um, I, I take it you guys got that 50 cal into operation and, and took out the, uh, what was it, a dishka up in the mountain? Yeah, actually, I think what it was is a 14.5 inch machine gun, which is a little bigger than a dishka. That fires a little bit like, like a, like a uh, ZSU. Yeah, it's kind of like a ZSU, but with only one, like one barrel. One barrel, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we uh, so we took out that thing, um, which was uh, it was intense. You know, we were up there taking fire. You know, we we unloaded like six hundred rounds of fifty cal, I think, from that location. <laughs> uh, Jeez. Yeah, I mean, it was insane, and. uh so that, that kind of freed up. The Kurds broke into Sargat, basically. And at that point, in my book, I describe it like it's kind of like an ant farm where if you, if you like released one little piece of dirt and they could get into this other section of the farm, that's kind of what it would look like. Where they, these just Kurds just spilling into the village and, and, uh, and taking, taking out anybody who was there. I saw a few Kurds get killed like right in front of me on the outskirts. Uh, and then we fought through that, which then we thought it was kind of over. You know, we, we, there was some sporadic fighting around the outskirts. Uh, and then we drove through, uh, well, actually there was some really crazy thing happened first is that suddenly out of nowhere, the Kurds brought us lunch on like a platter. <laughs> They're like, you, you, yeah. The Americans have to eat now. So, you know, in the middle of all that, suddenly we have this platter of, like, chow, and we take a little break and eat. The Kurds like <laughs> to feed then, you, uh, too. They what? They like to feed you. Oh, definitely. We, we were not hungry ever in, in Iraq. <laughs> there, was, there was no suffering uh, on that front. So we lived with the Kurds like, uh, like we were, uh, I, don't, I don't know, we, you know, we didn't have, there was no base, you know, like Green Berets don't usually go to like a base. There's no concept of that. You're going to live with the locals wherever you go. So we lived in, uh, in the Kurdish, uh, buildings, uh, and sometimes even in people's houses for a day or two, uh, just as we moved around constantly. So there, there was no concept of a base, um, at that point. So yeah, we ate our lunch uh, in in Sargat, right uh, next to the chemical facility, actually, uh, which was actually blown like to bits um, from Tomahawk missiles that had that had hit, which is a whole nother story. Uh, the Tomahawks flying in was intense beyond belief. <clears throat> that happened before. Um, so we then we pressed onward toward more towards the Iranian border. Till we were actually really close to the Iranian border, we could see like the Iranians' border, like 
some border position we could actually see. Then we got in another huge firefight there where, you know, uh, actually you mentioned one of the Talibanis. So I was actually, this whole time, I was almost side-by-side side with Bafal Talibani. Um, and Bafal was uh, Jalal's son. Okay. Um, yep. Jalal, you know, you know, Jalal Talibani is, uh, or he was the, the president mm-hmm. of all the PUK Kurds at that time. Uh, so he was pinned down behind this truck with me for a while um, at, after, after Sargat up on this other hill. Uh, and then at that point, we we were getting hammered uh, in this little village, like by machine gun fire, just chipping away at buildings that we were trying to get behind. We couldn't see anyone. Like, it, it was really frustrating. The the terrain, um, and then the the enemy wearing like tan. It was super hard to locate people. It's very frustrating, actually. So we called in an airstrike, and this is where a a significant, like, danger-close airstrike kind of pulled us out of that one. Um, and we actually almost had a friendly fire incident with the flanking Kurds on the green prong uh, on that. But luckily that, that didn't happen. But So that pretty much, at that point, it's almost getting dark. Uh, so we'd been fighting all day from sunup to sundown, and then we went back down into the uh, into Sargat and, you know, stayed the night uh, there. Were you concerned, Mark, about, you know, potentially breathing in like chemical substances or something after the tomahawks had hit the whatever chemical facility was there? Definitely. And I'll tell you, like, I, you know, it may be controversial to say, but I think that we did. I mean, I, I had this weird and I, I wrote about this in my book pretty extensively, like, that that night, like later on, uh, when we were up at the uh, the next village upwards where we were taking fire and called an airstrike, I got this really bad like sickness came over me, uh, and I wasn't the only one. Um, so I can't help but wonder if there's something about basically going through that like you know, uh, Sargot chemical like facility. Gulf War uh, who syndrome. knows what yeah. like came out of that. So the end of the first night, uh, I was just saying it it reminds me or sounds similar to like Gulf War syndrome, like maybe the guys were exposed to, you know, low levels of of some kind of chemical substance or weapon. Yeah, I mean, that thought has been in my head for a long time because I'll tell you, I've had some, you know, I, I felt horrendous that night, like in a weird like way. And, uh, I've actually had some like recurring feelings like that afterwards too and we were also like bizarrely like uh, lethargic for mm-hmm. several almost like a week afterwards which it might have been just because of the sheer exhaustion of what we just did but ha- i thought that I'm, might I'm have something to do with it have you or any of the guys you served with got any type of blood tests you know i, I would think that that'd be something you'd, you'd want to do um yeah i actually did um, and there's, there's that no one has ever found anything hmm. conclusive on that. So I guess it's a, it's a gut thing and I'll never know. But, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, those uh, guys, if you, if you Google it, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, the guys exposed to agent orange in Vietnam, I mean, they really didn't learn until it was too late. It's not like they were able to take a blood test and see that there was any type of chemical in their blood. But I would, I would just wonder, I mean, because that, that is something that I would think would stick with you if, if all these guys you served with 
had a similar experience. Yeah, I, I, I definitely don't rule it out. Let's put it that way. Uh, I don't dwell on it, but <laughs> uh, it's definitely possible in my mind. So, I mean, they did find stuff in that facility. So the I mean, end, like you can Google it and see about it. The, the end of the first night, then you were back in Sargat. Uh, was that was that yep. the end of of you know the as far as the kinetic aspect or of Viking Hammer or did it go on in the next day? Uh, it went on for at least the next day. Uh, we did a little cleanup stuff, but most of that was handled by the Kurds. Uh, there was only a couple things where we directly uh, went with them. It was more them just doing cleanup around the outskirts. Uh, the uh, a lot of these Ansar Islam guys actually escaped like into Iran. Uh, they we we could see them actually like post holing through the snow up over going over the border. So, you know, I think the numbers vary, but uh, we killed several hundred of them. Um, I've, I've heard numbers up as high as three hundred, but I don't I don't actually know what it was. Uh, but, you know, if there were seven, eight hundred or a thousand of them or whatever there was, I mean, imagine how many escaped, um, which led me to, you know, think about. So my book is very uh, open minded in how I recall these things. And and I, I talk about questioning really the validity of the whole thing. Like, did it really accomplish anything? I don't I'm not really sure because I, I wonder sometimes if all we did was kind of disperse them. Um, which which actually made it harder to keep track of them, and then they popped up as different entities later on. Like so, when I when I look like back Al-Qaeda at Al Qaeda in Iraq, I, I can't. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, some of these guys that we pushed out of this enclave in northern Iraq, you know they uh, they were they were cell leaders and founders of other of other things later. Well, um, it sounds so. similar to, um, I can't help but draw the comparison, uh, Operation Anaconda in Afghanistan where, uh, you know, Tom Greer, who's the Delta Force commander on the ground, wrote in his book, um, what was it called? The book was called Kill Bin Laden, actually. And he, he expressed a lot of frustration in the book about how many people were able to escape, including Bin Laden himself, because they did not have the manpower to um, envelope that area and, and, you know, prevent, you know, some of the egress routes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's exactly my frustration. I'm, you know, going back in time, like standing there in the foothills, looking up into the, the snow capped peaks of the Iranian border and literally seeing little specks of guys escaping, you know, and I'm like, where are they going to go? You know, and what what are they going to They're not going to quit. You know, the the ones who stay behind to die are the insignificant ones. Um, and, you know, the ones who are leaving are going to perpetuate the whole, you know, psychotic stuff they got going on. So, like, anyway, that was a little disheartening. I kind of, I can see where, I had never read that book, but that, uh, I agree totally with the sentiment of that. Especially with us, we couldn't envelope them because they were on the Iranian border. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, we were just pushing them against it, and they, you know, I, I would guess hundreds of them escaped. 
But I mean, the point of the operation, wasn't it to uh, sort of a rear guard action, right? So that Ansar couldn't stir up a bunch of shit for the coalition as they invaded from the south. And I mean, you guys did accomplish that objective, uh, I believe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even just dispersion definitely solved for that, for that need. Yeah, if if the mission would have been to eradicate all Ansar Islam, then it probably would have been a failure. But since it was just to protect our back door, I guess I guess you're right. It it was a success in that regard. On the second day, um, I describe a part of my book that I've actually got tons of feedback on that was deemed pretty epic. Was when uh, so they wanted to uh, a, a sensitive site exploitation team came in. Uh, to Sargat to to look through this facility, um, and these guys were wearing like chemical suits, mm-hmm. um, and we're you know of course our team guys were all laughing. I'm like, how come we didn't get those things? You know, like, but <laughs> you know, there's nothing you can do about it. But anyway, I me and my medic were um, basically tasked to uh, collect hair samples off of the dead Ansar guys. Mm. Um, yeah, which was you know, a disturbing beyond belief experience. So, um, I wrote a very detailed depiction of, of this haircutting that we did. Um, and literally what we did is walked around with a digital camera and some plastic Ziploc bags and a pair of scissors. And we grabbed dead guy's hair and cut it off and put it in bags and took pictures of them. And I'll tell you, uh, I will never forget, you know, just wading through the carnage of these dead people, you know. And I know they they were like terrorists and stuff, but it's still at some level a human being that is blown to bits, yeah. burnt to a crisp, uh, you know, just hor- I, I This part, you just got to kind of read it. I've had people actually claim that it made them throw up. Um, it was that that intense so that was a super uh was the the point of collecting uh, the hair to have it tested for to see if they had been exposed to chemicals or was there some other reason no that that was it as far as i know but from what i hear that's the best way to detect whether someone with had has had any exposure because i guess your hair like preserves it for a while Mm -hmm. um longer than anything else so so there we were, you know, you know, cutting hair off people's heads, uh, dead people. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, it's one thing to look at dead people, but to actually reach out and touch them, uh, you know, and, and sometimes like there's flaky burnt skins is coming off and stuff like. Yeah, it was, it's it was kind of uh, like SF Propay doesn't necessarily cover all this, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I had a major, uh, I mean, that really impacted me significantly. Um, you know, I thought I was a tough guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was really surprised how much that bothered me. Um, you know, I, I think if you ask anybody in 10th group that knew me, that I was, I was probably considered one of the, one of the top performers. I would have never thought that stuff like that would bother me. I just didn't, didn't see it coming. It's also it's just sheer uh, it did, numbers so. of it from what uh, you describe. you know, like, uh, it reminds me of, uh, of Jim West when he talks about being at the highway of death in the Gulf war and just, just the, the sheer volume of, of dead bodies. Yeah. Yeah. I describe it and I kind of quantify it by like, um, imagine like 10 football fields 
with a dead body completely mangled every like 10 feet. <laughs> God. You know, and because it was, it was, you know, I don't know. I'll just say a hundred or so at least uh, dead people, you know, every 15 or 20 feet for all along this entire kind of outskirt of the, of the village. And we were just walking. Some of them were blown to bits. Um, cause what they were doing is when we were overrunning them, they were, they were strapped with suicide vests, some of them. Oh, I see. So they would detonate. So we had detonated suicide bombers, you know, which are completely kind of fractured. Um, people who were shot, blown up, burned. Uh, one particular group got hit with like a, uh, one recoilless rifle round that was an incinerary round. So they were burnt almost into like a pile. Uh, stuff like that. So I won't dwell on it anymore, but, uh, it's a, it's in the first chapter at the end where of my book, but it's brutal. So we, we leave Sargat, uh, Viking hammers over and now we go to the green line. Um, and this is where chapter two is the green line. And that's where we, you know, we're, we're going up against the Iraqis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we went out there linked up with about 5,000 Kurds who are randomly, distributed near uh, the village of Tuz, which is southwest from Kirkuk um, on the map. So our job was basically to, to bomb the living crap out of the Iraqis and do harassing attacks on them um, outside of, of Tuz. And, uh, and we did that very well. You know, we basically rotated out on OPs, you know, observation points, called in airstrikes, uh, did some light harassing attacks on them. Uh, and that, that was another thing where it was very, it was very brutal after multiple weeks of essentially just incinerating hundreds of Iraqis over and over again, you know, without them really doing much about it. Um, that, that also weighed kind of heavy on my mind. Like how, uh, like, how combat ineffective the Iraqi forces were. Yeah. And, you know, there were, there were exactly, they were, they weren't doing anything against us. And, you know, here we are just slaying them, um, with, with airstrikes. And, uh, and there, there was also reports of like that the Iraqi officers would kill their own people if their own people tried to leave. I believe that. So we're like, we're, we're like bombing these people or it just got to the point where it was almost sickening to me to watch like bombs drop anymore. Uh, and then, you know, I won't dwell on that either. I'll try to get through these a little bit faster. But uh, we end up pulling out. Um, everybody, you know, gets gets sent home. Uh, and I'll tell you, like my head was just spinning with mm-hmm. this stuff. It was it was rough on on my on my brain. Um, but then you know we got home. I describe a little bit of the difficulties of like coming home from yeah. that. You know, because we were literally in Iraq in combat. And then I'm sitting at home eating dinner with my wife, like two days later, like <laughs> my ears were still ringing. You like, know, how do was, you adjust to that? Yeah, it's really, it's, it's really hard. I, I mean, I'm not the only one obviously who has experienced it and some guys have had it worse than me, but it's no joke to try to try to, you know, get, get back in the groove of being a civilian or being in the civilian world. So this is where the story takes like an interesting, like uh, inspirational turn that 
I've gotten really great feedback on this part of the book, which is I uh, it's almost immediately when I came back from Iraq, I was reassigned to go to uh, SWIC, the Special Warfare Center and School, which is the SF schoolhouse at Fort Bragg which is actually kind of bizarre, like to be immediately reassigned. <laughs> so within literally a couple of weeks, I'm, uh, I'm headed to Fort Bragg. Like the, the smoke hasn't even cleared in my head and I got to like out process and move my family back to Fort Bragg uh, from Fort Carson, Colorado. Um, and this is where like three things simultaneously happened that were interesting. So I, one, I was having major like psychological issues with, what I just went through. Two was I started getting an education uh, because I had the time as an instructor. Um, and then I, uh, I, be, I fell into the whole world of technology completely by mistake. So were you an 18 Echo? An eight, uh, what? Were you an 18 Echo? I was an 18 Bravo. Oh, okay. Uh, which is a weapons guy. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, was, an, I was an 18 Bravo. Driver. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, yeah. That's why I was asking. I, I, and what, what course were you teaching? Were you going on the Bravo committee when you went back to SWIC? No, I actually went to this new thing that they were building called the 18 Fox course, oh, which I'm cool. sure you're familiar with. The so Intel I course. just totally by accident, um, and because they needed people, and I knew, the, I knew the guy who was running the thing, the NCO in charge, um, and I became an 18 Fox instructor. Um, and this is where the story takes a really interesting turn that uh, I start to learn technology. Like I was a total 18 Bravo knuckle dragger, <laughs> you know, like gunslinger, uh, you know, the deal. And I basically fell in love with technology. Um, I became a programmer, like on my own. I could write code after like a year or two. Um, I also got an education during that time in, in English, English and philosophy. So, which made all that made me really think about what I had been doing before that a little bit critically. So I become really introspective about everything that has ever happened really in my life. So I get deeply philosophical in chapters three and four about things like war in general and like the philosophy of it and all that kind of stuff. But it's, it's as I evolve from this knuckle dragger, 18 Bravo into a educated technology guy is what ultimately happens. Um, so that's what happens at the 18 Fox course. And then I chapter four is when I go to SOCOM because I, I went to SOCOM to run kind of a technology and analytics shop down there because I'd kind of gotten a reputation now as like a technology guy, but as a 18 series SF guy at the same time. So long story short on that, you know, I end up becoming like a super hardcore programmer, software engineering, computer science. Um, I actually enroll in a master's program and I get software engineering master's degree. Um, and it's just a total, uh, you know, I would say it's, you know, it's almost inspirational how I, I overcome kind of the psychological stuff that I was having issues with. My daughter's a little kid that, you know, I'm really into. She helps me along with figuring out what matters in life. 
And, you know, I just, uh, at, at the end of chapter four is I basically retire from the army and I become a civilian, you know, technology leader, uh, which subsequently I became a CTO of a startup. Uh, and now I'm a senior director in a $3 billion satellite imaging company. But it, you know, it's that progression that I described in chapters three and four. Uh, it is pretty interesting. And it is, a, so, it is a pretty big transformation to go from an enlisted weapons sergeant um, to being a, a CTO of a, or a director of a, of a tech firm. Yeah, exactly. That's the, uh, you know, um, it, and I, I don't do it with a, you know, I'm not trying to be like a, um, what, what you may call it, like pretentious about it either. I, I'm the way I describe it's very humble. And, uh, a lot of people have really enjoyed that part of the, well, and especially it's also, actually tech, technology people. I mean, I would just point out, I mean, that is a transformation that most veterans SF or otherwise are going to have to make, um, unless you want to be, you know, private security contractor for the rest of your life, um, you know, guarding a fob somewhere, you know, you have to pick up new skills and, and learn a new profession, go to college, all that kind of stuff, uh, to transition into some sort of civilian career. Yeah, totally. That was, and that's exactly why I, um, I articulated that so much in my book is because I thought it would, I thought it'd be good for veterans reading it to see that kind of uh, a transition like that is actually possible. Yeah. You just got to kind of commit, commit to it and attack it like you do everything else as a, as a military guy, you know? Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's what I did. So, so then what happens in the book is it goes back in time. Um, so I kind of front load all that in the beginning of the book. And then I go back in time to way before any of that. Um, and then walk people through when I first arrive at group, um, as like a, I was an infantryman for five years before, uh, I went to SF. Um, so I, I, I start with like day one in 10th group, um, and then going to Bosnia twice, uh, is ch- the next two chapters. So Bosnia was interesting because it was the total opposite of what I ever thought an SF guy would ever do. Um, and it, it was basically, uh, hanging out with local people, talking to them so we could see what's going on in Bosnia. So post-war Bosnia is an amazing place. Uh, that, that was one of the most horrific wars of all time. Um, and I actually have really fond memories of, of Bosnia. Um, but our mission there was called Joint Commission Observer. Um, and our whole job was to give NATO situational awareness of what the locals uh, think and are doing, uh, on the ground. So what that amounted to in reality to an SF dude was, you know, you, you have a bunch of people that you meet with every day. Some are just regular people. You go to their house, maybe go eat dinner with them, or you meet the mayor of a village or the chief of police or whatever. And basically you get hammered with them, you know, at least <laughs> once a day is what it amounts to. So I was drinking Schlebovitz, also known as Rakia. Yeah, I have um, a bottle in my Bosniak. closet from Serbia. You familiar actually. with that? Yeah, from Serbia, I got a bottle of Rakia. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it's good stuff. So it's, I, I was immune to that stuff after two years <laughs> of uh, two tours in Bosnia, 
basically my job was to drink with people um, and then report what was going on. Um, I, I could, yeah, I, I would get drunk like in mid morning, eat lunch, get drunk again, maybe eat dinner or something, and then meet with somebody else and get drunk again. So it was, <laughs> it was amazing. But I, I, so I describe all that. Um, I also do a lot of, uh, I do a lot of philosophical stuff about that war. And uh, there's some stuff in there about that that's pretty interesting. Uh, so I, I walk readers through two tours in Bosnia of doing that. Um, and there's a bunch of interesting stuff in there, like Operation Vodka Chaser, uh, which is a funny name for when the Russians rolled from Bosnia into Serbia in 99. Mm-hmm. Uh, the SF guys who were there who were doing JCO missions actually started to do reconnaissance on the Russians to see what they were doing, like how many were moving in and all that. So it was, it was kind of a, you know, a weird case of, you know, you got Americans in Bosnia, you know, kind of keeping tabs on the Russians because the Russians are going into Serbia uh, because of the whole thing going on with Kosovo. So that was all kind of mixed up there. That was a, that's interesting. That was an interesting thing. Yeah. It's something I never really heard about before. Yeah, a little, a little, another little-known SF operation. Um, yeah, so two tours in Bosnia. Uh, people really like the Bosnia stories because of the. There's a lot of human connection stuff in that, and and it's also just surprising to people that Green Berets do that kind of stuff. Uh, they uh, got the image of bayonet in your teeth crawling through the mud, you know, <laughs> backflip over barbed wire fences. Yeah, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, you so also talk about Kosovo. Yeah, the um, doing joint operations with Russian Spetsnaz. I really wanted to hear about that because that's something else that I, I, it baffles me. I've never heard of any of this. So, yep. So that's Kosovo. Um, Kosovo was in uh, is in when was that? Two thousand one. Um, there was a mission in Kosovo called the Russian liaison team. Mm-hmm. Um, and SFODAs filled that role. So I was on, my team was a Russian liaison team, uh, which basically meant we patrolled the border of the, then the buffer zone. It's like a DMZ around Northern Kosovo, um, with the Russians. Um, and there was the Russian airborne and Spetsnaz that we were out patrolling with every day. Um, so it was literally like driving around on top of a Russian, you know, those six-wheeled uh, vehicles, like BRDRs and BMPs. Yeah, yep. yeah. Yep, driving around with them. Um, yeah, and we, we had one. So that was amazing in itself. Just here we are in Kosovo jointly working with the Russians, and we're basically doing patrols against the Albanians, which were the people that we supposedly bombed Serbia you know, to protect. So very paradoxical uh, in terms of <laughs> scenario. What, what was it like that? working so, with the Russian special forces dudes? Say that again. What, what was it like working with the Spetsnaz guys? Um, it was, it was amazing. So they had so much in common with us. I thought it was interesting. Uh, they were very similar to us, you know, the kind of, big macho guys uh, with kind of a special status, you know, in their military. Um, 
there was, of course, a language barrier other than for my captain who was fluent in Russian. Um, but, you know, we patrolled with those guys like almost like they were our teammates, you know, every day. So we would drink with them. Um, we even did like the Russian banya with them. I don't know if you've ever Mm-mm. done oh, one of those, that? but it's like a sauna. I would, I would call it a special Russian sauna uh, where it's so hot that it's like dangerous like you could die. It's so hot. <laughs> um, so anyway, we did stuff like that with them every day. And, you know, they were ultimately, they were a lot like us, you know, they were the elite of their military. They, you know, they were competent in tactics. Um, they, they were great to work with. I mean, we even had some really interesting just conversations with them about stuff like, you know, did, back in the eighties, did you guys really think we were going to nuke you? <laughs> you know, and you know, we would, we would talk about stuff like that every now and then. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was amazing. I, I walked out of there with a, a, another part of my brain questioning the whole concept of war, to be honest. I'm like, how could we be at war with people that are so similar to us? Like, right. And they're fighting for their country bizarre. the same way we're fighting for ours. As far as the Russians are concerned anyway. Yeah, totally. So in my book, I talk a lot about stuff like that, by the way. It's uh, so if people are interested in that angle of really questioning warfare, questioning politics and stuff like that, there's a lot of little tidbits all over my book. There's also an angle on like the Serbs and why NATO bombed the Serbs, you know, and did, did... when you know, I when did, I was did there, genocide really happened. I was there last year in uh, Belgrade, and uh, the Serbs to this day not too pleased with us, not too uh, pleased with the Clintons <laughs> because of all right. of that. Yeah, and uh, they'll be pretty open in yep. telling you that um, the borders that Serbia has today are not the correct borders. That's wrong. Uh, no, we they got screwed. History screwed them out of totally. what was rightfully theirs from their perspective. Yeah, the. Uh, one analogy I got while I was there. So when I was in Bosnia, we could hear bombs dropping in Serbia. Mm-hmm. So I'm hanging out with Serbs in Bosnia, while in some cases their families are getting like killed in in Serbia. So it was it was super tense. Yeah. Uh, but this one guy gave me an analogy of, he's like, well, what if like uh, one of these cartels decided they're going to take over like part of Texas? You know, what would you guys do? Is, you know, his questions to me. And I'm like, well, I would hope we'd roll in there and just whoop their ass, you know. And he's like, well, yeah, that's kind of what we tried to do in Kosovo. So <laughs> basically, in their mind, like Albanians illegally immigrated Kosovo to the point of where they pushed all the Serbs out. And then they started attacking them. And this is the Serb viewpoint. I'm not saying it's accurate, it, it's what they think. Uh, so they pushed them out. And then the Albanians push out the Serbs, I mean, because they don't really get along, so they moved out. Then ultimately, these Albanians declare independence, and they have an insurgent group and all that. So what do the Serbs do? Well, they roll in, and they do their thing. Um, so, you know, he, he his analogy to me was, like, some cartel takes over Texas. Okay, you guys roll in and do something about it. Oh, but, you know, let's say... China or Britain and France don't like the tactics you use. So they bomb the living crap out of New York city and LA like that. That was the analogy that 
people were were using against me when I was when I was hanging out in Bosnia while we were bombing Serbia. So anyway, it's these these perspectives just kind of build up in in the book, and I, I talk a lot about those, but. I thought I'd throw that one out there. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, the, yeah, I mean, the conflict is so incredibly complicated to like who's in the right, who's in the wrong. I mean, those are all, no, I, I, I think you, it's quite a challenge to, uh, find any of those answers. Yeah, totally. I mean, there, there basically are none. And then it becomes a question of who's, who has the right to define the answer. Yeah. You know, it becomes, that becomes the exercise. <laughs> So anyway, I, I unfurl all that stuff um, and more you know, as I talk through this stuff. So also in my book, I have a whole section in the back called introspections, mm-hmm. which is essentially footnotes um, throughout all the narrative of the memoir, which kind of gives it like a hindsight analysis of everything, uh, which I've, I've found a lot of people thought that was that is pretty, good because, cool. you know, uh, when people write memoirs, a lot of times, even like World War II memoirs, there's a difference between what you knew when you were at Omaha Beach and what you know 50 years later after historians have poured across that entire war. Yeah. And, and and also you've become older and you've had more time to reflect on what happened. And there's just that that huge difference between what was going through your mind then and what's going through it now. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that because that is a super important, it's almost like an artistic decision you need to make Yeah. when you write a memoir. And the decision I made was if you mix those two together while you're telling the story, it really dilutes the story. So what I did was the narrative of the actual events is done from kind of the, the then perspective, mm-hmm. but then I footnote the now in the back to reference it. So it keeps the narrative nice and smooth. Um, so it reads like a nice story, but you still get the benefit of the analysis, which was one of my goals was to have this thing be almost educational yeah, it sounds it. about, about stuff. So I've gotten a lot of good feedback about doing that. Like that, apparently that was a decent artistic choice in terms of a writer. Um, yeah, so uh, I'll keep going. So Kosovo, we did do one significant operation in Kosovo where it was my team and the Spetsnaz team actually raided an Albanian base camp. Um, and we got in a big firefight. Holy and, shit. And, you know, people got wounded. It was a big deal. Uh, um, I think five or six people on my team actually got awards for valor for it, <laughs> uh, which you would never – no one knows that happened. I don't think yeah, I, I've read my book. I have uh, never heard any of this. That yep. is awesome. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, like we were, uh, I was personally on top of a up armored Humvee with a Mark 19 machine gun mowing down the forest while these Russian guys were basically like the flanking element of the, of the attack. And this was a totally ad hoc attack on this, on this little base camp. So, oh, it was not planned. And it, you know, it was, yeah, it was not planned. Like we, we captured this guy by accident on the road um, and ended up, he ended up spilling his guts to the Russians uh, about where their base camp was. And we just immediately rolled on it without delay. Because in, in, in counterinsurgency and unconventional warfare, you get intel, you have to act on it instantly or it's gone. 
yeah, you know, the, the situation is, is gone. So that's what we did. Uh, so there's a pretty interesting uh, account of that in there, like that whole battle. That And it was a small battle, but it was, I don't know, it might be the only joint Russian-American attack on foreign soil uh, there's there has actually been i, I don't know it, it was interesting yeah i want to <laughs> i want to write about it now uh that'd be like a cool uh cool article to write about your book yeah i mean uh, that's i forget what chapter it is but just look at the kosovo chapter it'll give you yeah. and if you want more info i can i can talk about okay it. yeah I'll by pull the way it up. my but by the way my book did go through pre-publication review in case people are freaking out. So it did go through the actual, and I'm not, ta- I haven't talked about anything here that's not in there. So yeah, well, as cool you mentioned from that regard, yeah, you, you mentioned previously, there's stuff that you couldn't put in there. So. Yep. Yeah, there is. Um, most of it didn't affect the narrative. Good. Any, anyway, you know, it's just technical stuff, but, uh, anyway, I, I wouldn't have put it in there. So I'm not going to do that. Not, I'm not one of those. <laughs> um, yeah, so Kosovo ends. Um, and then I jump into uh, a little bit of stuff that happened. I went to Kyrgyzstan. I won't dwell on that one. That one's it's not a terribly exciting chapter, but there are some interesting moments in it. Um, but then it goes into the uh, the preparation for the infiltration into Iraq and mm-hmm. You know, this is where it leads up to the beginning almost again, where this is where we fly into Turkey. You know, we saddle up in rental cars and civilian clothes, hiding our weapons in the back seats and stuff, and then driving into Iraq um, and linking up with the Kurds and the CIA. And that that's a really exciting chapter in the way I kind of uh, describe that is, um, I've, I've gotten a lot of good positive feedback on how that that flowed. It, it was very surprising. So we, we basically go into Iraq, link up with the Kurds, and on the first night driving down through there, we're actually in like whiteout snowstorm. You know, which you you wouldn't you don't expect snowstorms in Iraq. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, we're we're up in the mountains above like Erbil, I think somewhere. I don't even remember where it was. Uh, we were just following the Kurds uh, because they wanted us to stay out of like rocket range from the green line. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of traversing up through the mountains up along the northern, more northern part of northern Iraq. Uh, but anyway, we're driving. We, we drove for 27 hours straight. Wow. To get, to get in there. Uh, so that, that was a, another interesting piece of the book because it's kind of unique you know not many people infiltrate like that um even though you learn about that in sf training you know like it was like robin sage for real you know yeah yeah. Sage is the big sf training thing yeah i'm wearing my pineland shirt right now (laughs) seriously yeah there you go so (laughs) so kind of like you know when uh like when i was in robin sage our jump got canceled because it was insane like storm going on Mm -hmm. And it's so similar to that infill that it was almost scary, like, you know, driving through the border and linking up with people, you know, you don't, not really sure who they are, but they tell you to follow them and you do, you don't know really where you're going. You know, there was a lot of that. It was, a, it was amazing. I mean, it was every SF guy's dream 
I had the uh, really I had the experience uh, not in uniform, but when I afterwards after I got out of the military, working as a journalist and um, linking up with the PKK in Kurdistan in uh, what was it 2015, and we were getting smuggled into Syria um, to go report on with the war, with the war, what was going on over there. But, um, before that, before we crossed the border, I remember is like you described, I mean, and just like Robin Sage, I mean, you're in a pickup truck out in the mountains, you get out, you follow somebody, you don't know where you're going. It's dark. You're carrying your backpack. You're trodden through the mud. You finally get up into this yep. little G base that's camouflaged in the side of the mountain, go inside and they have like the flags of the different guerrilla movements up inside you, everyone winds up and you shake hands. I mean, it was a Exactly the way we were trained in Robin Sage. It was crazy. It is, yeah, totally. I mean, that was uh, like the the value of Robin Sage in my mind is very high after yeah. experiencing that. Yeah, like, same here. <laughs> um, I think when I went through it, I thought it was ridiculous a little bit. I'm like, oh. yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's like I, role I was players. An infantry guy, you know, I was a bullet catcher, basically, eleven Bravo guy, and. Uh, I thought it was kind of crazy. I'm like, how can, how could this ever be? And there it was. And I yeah. looking back, I'm like, Robin Sage needs to preserve its goodness. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I hundred uh, percent agree. I, Cause I remember having the same experience. I, I remember having a conversation with the, my lead instructor, uh, master Sergeant and Robin Sage. And I, I thought there were aspects of the course that were kind of silly because it's like role players and it's a fictional country. And so they come up with like little, like fictional, um, mantras that the gorillas tell. It, it's like, you're kind of like on the set of a movie or something. It's like, this is kind of goofy, but they're doing the best job they can to replicate, you know, being in a foreign country that, uh, in a foreign culture and in, in such a weird environment that you're with a gorilla group. And, uh, and I guess like you, I mean, I both, uh, over time and through experience, I've come to really value, uh, the training I got at Robin Sage. And, uh, and I also believe that it's a good course that we need to keep putting our guys through. Yeah, I totally, totally with you. So, yeah, so the book basically ends, um, once we infill, organize the Kurds and then the, the, the boys fly in, um, in wounded aircraft and then we head down to Halabja, and then basically you've now gotten to the beginning. Well, um, and then there's a there's a whole lot of other dynamics in the book. Uh, was one of one of my other artistic choices with it was to be very singular in the perspective view. Uh, so most like I wanted to be different than most war books mm-hmm. um, in a bunch of different ways. But one of them is that I it's it's good and bad is. A lot of books, there's a lot of, they use the word we, and they're always talking about the whole team and what we did and that. But I, I, I actually purposefully wrote it solely from my, like, one lens. So, so actually, I've gotten a little bit of criticism a couple times where people thought it was kind of a selfish way to write it, where I don't, I don't even talk about my teammates that much. It's purely... Uh, but I did that artistically, not because I'm just a jackass. <laughs> uh, it's one of those things you know, where, I, you know, you do you write it from your perspective? Are you writing a memoir or are you writing like a documentary account where you're going to go and interview all of your teammates and create this like collective, you know, well-documented experience? Or are you going to draw it or write it from, you know, your point of view and what you saw, what you yep. experienced? 
Exactly. So it was all my view, all my perceptions, uh, and it's totally only me is how it's written. That's one of the reasons why the title is called One Green Beret, <laughs> uh, because I- it's about literally one. Uh, and and I think my path was pretty unique. Um, so that was another reason for that title. I think sometimes that's done out of fear for the same criticism that you're saying. You know, I've had plenty of guys sit down in this studio, and and I think it's almost like a defense mechanism of saying, like, this isn't all about me. It's about the guys. It's about the team. But but sometimes it's okay to write something that's all about you, and you you have to be willing to face that criticism of For sure. someone saying you're putting out a selfish book. It, what does it matter? It's it's your story. If this is what you want to tell, then it's okay. You don't have to tell the perspective of every guy that you served with. And and I think it goes without saying that the guys that you served with are brave and all have their own stories. Yeah, totally. Yep. That and you're right. That was the that was the conscious choice I made. Uh, to to do it like that. Well, Mark, like I said, I I came across your book uh, quite by happenstance, but I'm so glad I did. And I'm so glad that, you know, we could get you on the podcast today to tell a little bit about your story. Uh, This has actually been even more fascinating than I thought it would be. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was great. No, I, I really, about it. I really mean it when I say like this is one of the better interviews we've done in nearly four hundred episodes. I mean, I think this is the stuff that people come to this podcast for. They love to hear these stories, and then when I hear you know the introspective take and and the philosophical take of this book, I think people are going to be dying to pick this up. Yeah. So, so the, the book again, it's called One Green Beret. You can find it on Amazon. Where else can people find it, Mark? Um, it is almost completely on Amazon. Okay. Okay. Yep. I would just stick, just stick with Amazon anywhere else is going to be rare. That's the way of the future, man. Yeah. Yep. All right. Is there any, any, uh, other concluding thoughts, uh, Mark, before we wrap it up about the book or about life in general or (laughs) anything you want to throw at us before we go? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, it was great to be on. This is the first time I've ever talked about it like this, so I really appreciate you guys for having me on. That's cool. I'm and so I, you know, so happy I, we could have you uh, do your, I guess, your first interview for the book. Absolutely. Yeah, it, this has been excellent, and, and I think something that we really pride ourselves on is the fact that you can come on here and for over an hour go really in-depth on the book. I mean, a lot of media hits that people have to do they're trying to sum up a 15 year story <laughs> in like a 30 second to a two yeah, minute impossible. hit at the most, you know, on whatever news station. So this has been an honor. Uh, and we really learned about stuff that I've never heard about. Jack's never heard about. And, and most nope. of our audience probably, um, you could follow Mark on Twitter, which is where I found him at Giaconia Mark. So that's G I A C O N I A mark on twitter that's where we made contact and we're able to make this happen uh any any other place that people could find you um a lot of people hit me on linkedin awesome so if you just search my name on linkedin you, you'll you can find me cool all right we'll talk soon yep later guys take care thanks that was excellent having mark on you know what's funny is the last episode with mike crosby uh i jokingly said like this isn't the sexiest story. This isn't what people come to the podcast for necessarily. They like to hear those door kicker stories and war stories. 
I think this episode is exactly what people come to this podcast Man, for. It's why I come to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love to hear these, like, uh, I mean, I guess you could kind of call it, like, obscure history or, or I, I hesitate to call it, like, the lost history or something like that. But there, there's, like, all of this, like, living history that resides with people like Mark that you will never, ever hear about unless you speak to Mark. Oh, uh, now you can read his book, thankfully. But otherwise, it's like you have to actually go out and find these people because there's nowhere else you can find it. Um, so, I mean, I love finding those unique stories and those those unique individuals and getting them on the podcast. And um, quite honestly, when when we booked Mark, I, I thought his stories about Viking Hammer were going to be kind of more of the... Um, you know, I was kicked back in the rear areas, you know, calling in airstrikes for the Kurds. I wasn't quite aware of, like, how hardcore... <laughs> It, w- it was going to be. Um, so as, he was involved in some pretty serious fighting actually out there. Um, so yeah, you never know. Like I said, you never know until you talk to the people involved. I'm glad to bring some awareness. If you want to use that word to the book, because it's a re- relatively unheard of book, you know, it's just available on Amazon. You won't see it in bookstores with, let's be honest, the most bland cover I've ever seen of just the title, One well, Green Beret on Black. So it's, I'll be honest, not something that necessarily it's, grabs it's, your attention. It's, it's some good copy on the cover. I like it, the title, but... It um, is, but it, him, uh, you know, in co- it's true story of don't judge a book by its cover because him speaking about this for the past hour plus, it's an extremely exciting book, an extremely action-packed book. So Yeah, and, you know, he wrote this book himself. Um, I'm, I think he probably self-published it. So, I mean, it's one of these things you can go and read it, support the author, and uh, and you're hearing it straight from the horse's mouth, you yeah. know, unadulterated. Well, as we wrap this up, another book that I suggest everybody check out, uh, the audio book as well, which is out today uh, as we're recording this. So if you're listening to this on Wednesday, it came out on Tuesday. Listen to Vince Flynn's Red War, a Mitch Rapp novel by Kyle Mills. Red War follows CIA operative Mitch Rapp as he races to prevent Russia's gravely ill leader from starting a full-scale war with NATO. Red War is an action-packed thrill ride featuring pulse-pounding suspense, electrifying intrigue, and fascinating characters. The Red War audiobook is read by longtime series narrator George Guidel. Red War is available now wherever audiobooks are sold. Listen to it today. Thanks, guys, for checking out this episode. As always, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, If you have any questions or anything like that, it's softrep.radio at softrep.com. Always appreciate the feedback coming in on Twitter and Instagram at softrepradio. And I think this was a stellar episode. So if you enjoyed it as well, spread the word. Get the word out there about the show. And uh, let's keep this going. Uh, We've been getting more listeners than ever before, which is great. And uh, we plan to keep this thing moving. Yeah, we're going to have an uh, awesome guest next week. I, will, I guess we can keep it a surprise, but... It next, uh, well, really, next episode for so far. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I mean, next episode. Yep, I'm excited for it. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.